are back. This is the Dream is Free podcast. I'm your host, Jake Healy, with our other host and super producer, Mike Theophil. We are powered by Downtime TV. That's our production company. We are very excited for our guest today. We've already start, started talking for a while now, but our guest today is uh, Jonathan Joseph, and uh, he is a lot of different things, but I, I think first and foremost, you're, you're a creator, right? Yeah. You're an artist. I, I call myself a creative professional, creative consultant. I have had uh, many titles uh, because for me, I just, I find passion in a lot of things. I think that's something a lot of people nowadays can relate to. And um, now at like 34, I've, I've noticed the shift in the culture. You know, when I was younger, uh, it was a little less acceptable to be like a little all over the place. And I think a lot of people in my life were like, could you just like pick something, dude? Uh, and obviously my answer was no, uh, because I don't think you should have to, you shouldn't have to pigeonhole yourself. I think what underlines everything I do for any of my companies and projects is narrative. I'm all about telling stories, whether it's telling a story for a brand, telling a story for a nonprofit and creating a nonprofit. I do a lot of, uh, that kind of work, uh, whether it be for fundraising or even just logistically, uh, in my painting practice upstairs here at the Knowlton, you know, it's all about visual narrative and visual storytelling. So, um, you know, I think it's really important to note that you never know where life is going to take you and you never know what opportunities are going to come up for you. And if you're just open to them, you will see connections that other people don't. And I think that's probably my strongest trait as both a consultant and a creative. So um, I would definitely encourage anyone listening, follow the pings, man, like follow the pings to take opportunity where you can, because no one is going to just hand it to you. Yeah. The follow, omens. Follow the omens. The omens. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I call them pings. I do a lot of like manifestation practice. I'm very spiritual, so like I try to always ground myself so that I can be listening for them because I think it's Looking really out. easy in our culture to get lost in the noise. Um, whether it's the media, whether it's like 600 of your friends giving you 800 opinions about five things, uh, you gotta hone in your own voice. I think that's why grounding, meditation, yoga, mindfulness. Block out the noise. Yeah, I mean, for and, and also, like, meditation can take so many forms. For some people, meditation mm -hmm. is going to go lift things. For yeah. some people, it's running. For some yeah. people, it's hiking. I think finding whatever it is that resonates with you as something you can imbue with that energy is key. Yeah. I So I, I always used to say, like, that I, that I ran to meditate, you know, because at a certain point when you're running hard or, or, or long enough, like, you do your mind does go blank, you know, you get into that zone and you're just kind of listening to your breathing and you're going and you're going. But once I actually started sitting down and doing like actual meditation, like where you're not moving or doing anything like that, it's much harder to quiet your mind when you're just sitting there trying to focus on it and yeah. letting those thoughts pass and for sure. Focusing I mean, on everything. You know, I was raised uh, Jewish, reformed Jewish, and my mother was Catholic. So, uh, an interfaith marriage, my parents did this thing where I went to synagogue, but I also went to church. Uh, they wanted me to be exposed to everything. And my dad is from Iran, so uh, a Jew from a Muslim country married to a Catholic who paid for a bar mitzvah by working at a Protestant church. It's kind of like a really funny joke. Um, <laughs> and I've been a Buddhist for 10 years, or actually like 12 now. Uh, I became a Buddhist after my mother passed away uh, in 2006. You know, um, I think death is part of life, first and foremost. And I think anyone listening who has had a loved one that battled cancer, uh, there comes a point where their passing is in its own way a blessing because they're not suffering anymore. Right. And I think viewing it through that lens, especially for someone, I mean, my mother was a weird medical miracle. She had stage three metastatic breast cancer that spread to the bones, lungs, uh, and breast tissue and was in that stage three state for 26 years. You know, she had the same oncologist as Reagan. 
Uh, wow. So she was Jesus. very, yeah, Columbia Presbyterian, and they kept her alive a very long time. And this was a woman who worked every day of her life uh, until about two months before she died as a secretary, CPA, room mom, scholastic book fair lady, like did all the things. Uh, so I was very lucky in that regard because I got to watch a very strong, very powerful woman um, defeat a disease that would take many people down really quickly. You know, how many oh. people live 20-something years past the couple months they're given to live? Mm. Uh, it takes a certain sort of constitution yeah. to navigate that while also raising a child, um, you know. And for me, uh, especially as someone who has my own medical issues, uh, you know. Let's, yeah, let's go. Let's, let's back start up. at the beginning. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah, start sure, at the beginning because sure. I read dun, 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 I read through the notes that you sent over, yeah, yeah. and I think that starting as yeah gives gives a baseline. Yeah, for everything, sure. So. Uh, in the beginning, <laughs> yeah, in the beginning, <laughs> in the beginning, there was a little orphan named Ricardo Alvarez. Ricardo, my, which Ricky. was my birth name. Uh, I don't think I look like a Ricky, but I guess that's up for debate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I was adopted uh, at nine months old from Medellin, Colombia. My parents, um, to, to that earlier point, because of my mother's radiation therapy and chemo and things, she couldn't uh, bear children, so they ended up adopting, and uh, they found me. I was basically abandoned at the hospital by my birth mother from what I was. they were told uh, by the orphanage, and likely because I had cerebral palsy, so I can imagine a young mom not wanting or not having the capacity to deal with that and thinking that doing the best for me would be giving me up. Uh, so that's what happened. And much like a conveniently found handbag in a cloakroom, I was picked up by my parents and given a really blessed life. Um, you know, for me, I think being adopted in that way and like with that backstory, it gives me a sense of gratitude that is very unique. I think I wake up every day really grateful that I didn't have to grow up in the streets of Medellin, Colombia in 1986 when yeah, right. statistically it was the most dangerous city in the world. Yeah. You know, that was the height of Pablo Escobar uh, to, you know, plug Put it into like episode. context, yeah. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of Escobar, yeah. we just had that DNA Yeah, we just, on. Aaron Graham, yeah. It, yeah. It's funny how it, it, like, it all the, comes the timeline connects like, yeah. right there because Pablo Escobar was arrested in, or no, he died in 19, when did he pass away? 84. Four, five. I don't know, but considering I'm an orphan, who knows? Maybe he's my dad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that would be crazy. That'd that be that nuts. Would be crazy. Have you I, taken a DNA test? No, I don't want anyone to have that data. Are you crazy? I know me. Either. I absolutely do not I want know. anyone to have my DNA data. That me is either. that I don't trust a company to hold on to that. Yeah, I don't know who they're going to sell it to. It becomes a packaged commodity, just like anything else yeah. for, for a asset acquisition. Like I absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely yeah. not. So it's just so, it'll remain a mystery. Where did you, uh, after you were adopted, where'd you grow up? Uh, so I grew up in New Fairfield, Connecticut and spent my weekends and like things uh, in New York City. So I was like a weird country mouse, city mouse hybrid. My mom's family's been living in New York City for decades, since like the 30s. You know, they were those old school Italians living in Long Island City when Long Island City was like whorehouses and bus depots, Yeah, uh, <laughs> for lack of a better way to put it. And, uh, you know, I, I got a really interesting upbringing, you know, I was very lucky, uh, there's a term called transracial, right? So transracial means you are raised a different race than you are. So I didn't find out I was adopted until I was like 11. What was that like? Um, you know, you would think it was like this earth-shattering thing. Uh, uh, but honestly, I, I recall navigating it really well. Like I was flustered for like a day or two. Uh, and buried myself in video games yeah. <laughs> for like two days. And then I was like, okay, like it is what it is. You yeah. know, um, my parents, 
first of all, I was raised since an infancy, so like I never knew anything else other than my parents, at least my conscious mind. Subconscious mind, sure, there's all sorts of imprinted things from, you know, right. infancy that may, you know, that I work through on like shadow work and meditation and all those things. But uh, for me, it was, uh, it was just, okay, cool, you guys are still my parents, you've invested in me, you love me, you, you know, want the best for me. I mean, I think in some ways our culture puts so much emphasis on, you know, blood relations or like that kind of stuff where it's just like, if you're a parent, you're a parent. Yeah. That's it. And having now, because of my company, Little Red Fashion, uh, talked to literally hundreds of parents, I have a much different perspective on what it's like to parent because I have to make sure that I'm creating products and things that parents want, parents need, and that their kids enjoy. So um, for me, parents are parents. That's it. Yeah. There's no no bones about that. And honestly, um, I, have you ever heard of the thing where, like, if you adopt a dog as it gets older, you kind of start resembling your dog? I looked like my birth, uh, my adopted parents. <laughs> like, I look like their kids. So mm. also, like, when I was younger, it would ne it never really occurred to me that I would be adopted. And frankly, the rest of the world was also kind of surprised. Yeah. Uh, they were like, oh, but you look like them. Mm -hmm. So it, it's weird how those things kind of work out. Yeah. But um, I do want to say to anyone who's listening that is adopted, um, However, the circumstance was that you became adopted. Like, for you will help yourself immensely in this life if you work through forgiving your birth parents for giving you up. It's not because they didn't want you, and even if you feel like that's what it is, look for the blessings in the life that you were given, and like come to terms with that. It'll be really helpful. I think a lot of people I've spoken to that have also been adopted have a lot of trouble working through that reality. Yeah, and. Uh, I think one of the recurring themes in my life is like <laughs> working through some miscellaneous roadblock. That's Did you ever have any uh, desire to like meet your birth parents? You know, for the longest time, I would say until maybe three, four years ago, I was like, nope, don't care. Then three or four years ago, I was like, well, it would may maybe it would be interesting to find out. But there is still an overwhelming majority of my internal self that frankly doesn't care. You know, to paraphrase Steve Jobs in his biography, you know, a sperm donor and a basket to put an egg in. Uh, you know, I don't really, you know, I know the, the surname. I know that my birth mother's name was Patricia. I recently, so this is a weird story, uh, I have a friend who's a medium, who's also my massage therapist. Shout out to Ray, also known as the exorcist, uh, <laughs> because he's that good of a massage therapist, not gonna lie. Yeah. Uh, cracks me like a glow stick. And, uh, <laughs> and he's also a medium. And we were out one day, and he was like, um, I know we're out having drinks at the bar. We were at a leather bar in New York. And uh, he was like, uh, we're at the bar, but uh, your mom is here, and she wants me to tell you to go home and like look in this filing cabinet. And there's like documents that you need to see that I had never seen before. And it was like the full file on my adoption. It was like every letter my mom wrote from the whole thing. I mean, my, wow. mom, my mom was a... She's definitely where I get my like type A organizer personality. Yep, she kept you know? everything. Yeah, she kept. I mean, every correspondence, every letter, every typewritten form, every everything, uh, and like all the original Colombian documents in Spanish, which I don't speak. <laughs> um, you know, it was pretty interesting. So that's where I found out like my birth mother's name is Patricia. So that's like what I know of her. Her name is Patricia, and uh, I'm really grateful for her because she is her choice to give me up for whatever reason that she had is what opened up like a million opportunities for right. me um, through my birth parents who were really grateful to have me. I mean, Jonathan as a name means gift from God. And to them, that's exactly what I was because they wanted a child for so long. And then they finally got one. And, and they got the one they, they needed. The one they needed, yeah. exactly. Maybe not Maybe not the one they wanted. Especially <laughs> as I was growing up. I was definitely not an easy kid to raise. I bet. Uh, I was a handful. Yeah. You know, um, like I said, ADHD definitely was a thing. So that was a, a challenge for them. Uh, you know, my dad comes from Iran. My dad, my so mom. So he's very 
strict, I'm assuming? Uh, yes. And at least early? Yes. And it, but what I appreciate about Iranian culture as it co- pertains to like raising kids is that there is this beautiful, I'll almost call it an obsession, yeah. um, f- with intellectual pursuits yeah. where Iranian culture, uh, particularly in diaspora, meaning like following uh, the revolution in 79 is really focused on education, like very much. I mean, there were, I don't think it's the most recent census, it may be the one prior, but if you look at the percentage of Iranian Americans holding advanced degrees, we're like the highest educated minority in the United States. Yes, very mm-hmm. a lot of doctors, like very smart Oh people. yeah, you have three options when you grow up in a person's house. <laughs> Here we you go. Lawyer. Doctor, lawyer, engineer. That's yeah. it. And then like, <laughs> you said that's it. Or or a CEO. Like eventually, I have to get a PhD in something. Yeah. Because yeah. other <laughs> otherwise, I bring shit. You're a failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. no, I I won't say that because <laughs> I will say one of the greatest things. My dad and I are polar opposites. Okay, we could not be more different. I have been a community organizer and activist in the LGBTQ community since I was 14 years old. Uh, you know, working for the Connecticut Educators Associations, the Anti-Defamation League, and various other organizations. Right now, I sit on the board of the New Haven Pride Center as our development chair. Um, shout out to uh, Patrick, our wonderful executive director. If you go to newhavenpridecenter.org, you should totally donate. We're in the midst of doing some really great things. When I came on the board two years ago, our annual budget was fifty-four-ish thousand dollars. We are on track to break five fifty now. Nice. So that is a massive growth. Very proud of it. We are on track to be one of the largest organizations in the state. Uh, and so, like I said, my dad and I couldn't be more more different. He's a he's a Trump supporter. Uh, you know, he's uh, much more conservative than I am, and much more risk averse. He does so not. He's like a conservative Iranian Trump supporter. And then yeah, yeah, there's yeah, a, yeah, there's yeah, a yeah, pretzel of a thought. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that's a thing. Um, you know, and uh, but we ultimately always come together on the fact that he has always felt uh, that I had something great uh, in store for me, and that you know, to him, I I was my parents' biggest investment. Did you guys ever bump heads? <laughs> Did we ever bump heads? Is he the said sky which blue? time? Is the sky blue? Like yeah, 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 yeah. five thousand ways. I yeah, mean, you know, it took a very long. I came out of the closet when I was fourteen years old. Uh, took a very long time for my father to accept that. Wow, mm. very long time. I mean, you know, candidly, some of the things he said to me, no parent should ever say to their child. Yeah. Um. Thankfully, I have a very is he, strong. Is he from Iran? Oh yeah, my okay. father came to the United States. Uh, so his track rate, his, his history is actually very interesting. Um, he studied pharmacology. He came from a very, very, very poor family. Everyone in his family thought he was going to do nothing. They assumed he was going to be like a porter at the Hilton Hotel carrying luggage. Uh, my grandfather was extremely abusive, very, very physically abusive in the worst way. He used to keep a secret harem of like a, an office that wasn't really an office. Uh, and it was where he kept women and spent all his money on like women and booze and did Damn. not spend any money on my father and his sister and my grandmother, wow. uh, who he would beat savagely all the time. Uh, he was a foreman. And uh, my father intimidated him because my father was extremely bright, very smart, and was a high-achieving kid. So one of the things they would do in Iran is they would uh, nationally announce like the ranked students. Yeah. Okay. So my dad was like the top-ranked student always. That's, oh, nice. <laughs> he was like that guy, and ended up getting the Shah. And so he also played violin for the Shah. He was an accomplished. Uh, What's the Shah? The Shah was the, the king of Iran. Oh, sorry. Uh, before the revolution. Sorry. Uh, no, don't apologize. Like, uh, I don't know. Iranian history is super complex. Like, yeah, yeah. Unless you know it, you don't know it. Yeah. Right. Kind of one of those <laughs> um, and so, you know, I mean, he was, he played the violin for Kennedy when Kennedy visited Iran uh, as a class, because he was a classical Persian violinist. That was his thing. Um, it was what let him escape. He always used to tell me the story of this guy down the street that knew he was getting abused by his father and knew that he loved the violin, but like we didn't have enough money to get a violin. And so he ended up giving him a violin 
And then my grandmother, in order to protect him from my grandfather's abuse, would iron clothes and wash clothes in secret, like at night. And she used the money to rent a little apartment room that was like out of the house. So, so he that, could practice. So he could practice. Wow. Because wow. she, yeah. Crazy story. It, it, we got to get your dad on. <laughs> oh my God. You, you should. You know, honestly, my dad is, even though we're so different, I, my dad is one of my heroes. He has overcome so many things. I mean, this is a man who was told he was never going to be anything, went on to not only be an accomplished classical Persian violinist, but a highly published organic chemist. Uh, you know, he co-founded the Institute of Biology and Biotechnology at Tehran University, and then came and did work at Columbia. You know, he got his PhD from Columbia in organic chemistry. It's been published over 30 times. Um, wow. I mean, the man is, is extremely bright, extremely intelligent, and uh, really motivated. I've never seen a more dedicated professor in my entire life. This mm. is a man who has never even repeated an exam question, like an exam. He makes every, for his entire career, every quiz, every test, every assignment is made that semester. They are not repeated. They are like, he Damn. really takes his job. I would be so pissed yeah, because you too. can't go on Quizlet and find all that stuff. Or, Absolutely not. Yeah, <laughs> or go to like your buddy who had him yeah. the semester before and be like, right. yo, that that's test. That's why from, he does it. Yeah. Oh, that's why he does it. Yeah, and that's that why be... the, uh, like the study center in the chemistry department at Lehman College where he's tenured, they keep all of his exams because his, if you can ace his exams, you can ace anyone's chemistry exams. Mm. They, like he, he really is very diligent. Uh, but moral of the story, um, you know, he he overcame so much to then move to the United States to get his PhD at Columbia, where he met my mom. Uh, you know, who <laughs> hurt his aunt. my mom's aunt was the cashier at International House where he was staying, and he got a full ride to Columbia. Um, the the Shaw paid for it um, nice. because he was that guy. <laughs> yeah, and not not a lot to live up to, not at all. And it's yeah. uh, <laughs> like Hamilton. I right. <laughs> he uh, I do love writing. Do write like I'm running out of time, but that's not the <laughs> So yeah, there you, uh, go. you know, why do you write like you're running out of time? <laughs> I love you that. You shouldn't quit your day job. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, my mom's uh, aunt was the cashier at International House, and she's like, "Oh, Margaret, you gotta like meet this guy. He's so nice. He's so sweet." Da 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 da. Long story short, they fell in love. She ended up learning Farsi behind his back. Actually, she, oh wow. She, wow, she didn't. So your mom must be very smart too. Then. Oh yeah, she was. Uh, yeah, she was a bookkeeper and CPA. Uh, He's like, I'm getting to her. Don't worry. Oh, no. She was she was great. She was one of the most powerful women I've ever met in my life. And I, uh, there's nothing I love more than powerful women. Yeah. Um, it's very important to me to do that. In all of my companies, we try to, even with clients, like build female-led boards. Mm -hmm. Little Red Fashion, our advisory board right now, is, is two amazing women. Uh, we're onboarding our next one, who's a former exec at Yahoo, but I can't really talk fully about it yet. Yeah. I'm not fully solidified, but I'm very excited about it. You'll have to blessed. refer some powerful women over to us. Yeah, I will, will 100% do that because I feel like a lot of your episodes are they, all men. They, I feel like all well, 10 of these are men right let now. Let me explain real yeah. quick. So I, yeah. we were talking about this yes, the other day, and I was, been like, talking about it. I was like, it's, it's only like all of our, our close friends, family is like, predominantly men you know what i mean like that we just know from growing up and like pe people that we're close with you know um but we when we had abby on abby albany she was here on sunday we were like yes yeah, our first woman and yeah. like the whole time we've been talking like we need more women we need, need more, more women. women we need more i will women. totally keep that in mind and yeah. i will totally find you some like super some saucy badass women. yeah yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yes, yes yes i will help you find that i it is so important to elevate the voices of women especially i don't know who caught the debate last night but i'm really sick of these male candidates and their people talking over women in debates <laughs> yeah being yeah. allowed to do that because when women do that they're bitches which is totally nonsense i know um, it's crazy very much a male feminist here 
for yeah. the record. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> very important. So yeah, so they met, they fell in love. She learned Farsi in secret because she got sick of playing Trivial Pursuit with all the Persian PhD students and then mm. hearing like a bunch of Farsi and then Margaret in the middle. And she was like, yeah, I just got really sick of hearing my name and not knowing what was going on. Right. She, she found a Persian student in uh, Colombia to teach her Farsi for two years behind my dad's back. And then two years later... She just wanted to know if he was talking, sh- if she was ta- talking no, if, shit about uh, her. Yeah, if everyone was talking <laughs> yeah, shit about yeah, 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 yeah. So then, she didn't tell anybody yeah, that's yeah, yeah. fine. So then she said nothing. She was like a U-boat. She just sat there for two years. And then one day in the middle of Trivial Pursuit, someone said something and she was like, actually, this is what Margaret thinks. Oh, wow. And just like went off. In okay, Farsi, I would have loved to see Farsi, their faces. Fluent Farsi. Yeah, they were probably like. Arr. This is like a. This was like a white chick from New York, yeah. Irish, Italian, Catholic. Yeah, you know, just busting out fluent Farsi to the point that she actually, when uh, my dad finished his uh, PhD, they actually moved to Iran. My mom lived in Tehran, uh, right when the revolution was happening. When the revolution was really kicking off in 1979, my grandmother, my Irish grandmother, Hannah Doherty, was. Um, Doesn't get more Irish visiting. than that name. Oh, I know. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> Um, she was visiting and they made her leave because they started burning American flags in front of the apartment. And my dad was like, Hannah, you gotta go. You gotta leave. They are burning American flags across the street. Like you must go. And at that time, my mom was working at the embassy and she had to be smuggled out. She left with the Pan Am evacuation. Um, this this is what the, uh, movie Argo Art, Yeah. Argo, fuck yourself. Uh, Argo, (laughs) fuck yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Argo is a great movie. Honestly, as someone raised Iranian American, I, I was very well done. I have to give props yeah. for the. That's Ben Affleck. That's the Ben Affleck one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Great movie. Yeah, yeah. You should de- anyone should definitely check yeah. it out. It's. I think uh, a lot of people in the West have a very skewed perception of Iran in general, but also Iranian course, politics yeah. and like what led to uh, the state of Iran and a lot of the Middle East. Um, you know, to dive a little bit into the politics of it, I think we can blame Kermit Roosevelt for a lot of that. Mm. <laughs> you know. Um, Iran is a very complex place that uh, has a very long history of externalized powers dictating their terms and how they operate, whether it was the Belgians in you know running their gendarmes, whether it is the British through what is now BP, but formerly the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, um, you know, dictating the terms of how they exist. Um, I would definitely recommend, there's a really great book called Children of Paradise, if I'm remembering correctly, that gives a really great survey of the history of Iranian politics and sort of how it's gotten to the point that it is today. And I highly recommend it to anyone, particularly someone who's not Iranian who wants to learn. It's a phenomenal book. Definitely pick it up. Got it. We will. Yeah. Let's, uh, Let's we, move on. Yeah. for your story, we left off when you were adopted. I know tangents, right. man. It's tangents. okay. Yeah. I mean, your parents are a big part of your story. Right. So. They are. They are so. because they well equipped me to deal with the many twists and turns that my life has taken. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, I, I uh, was brought to the United States, lived in Yonkers for a little bit on Ballant Drive. Uh, and then my parents moved here to New Fairfield because of the school systems, because at that point they weren't a raging dumpster fire. They were yeah. <laughs> blue right. ribbon schools. Um, you said you know, a new Fairfield, right? New oh, Fairfield, okay. not old Fairfield. Yeah. New Fairfield, yeah. up by the lake, up by Candlewood Lake, yeah. um, which was great. I loved growing up in a lake community, loved going in the water. I was definitely a water kid, couldn't leave me outside without me playing with the hose or getting caught up in some form of water, so lake time was good. Um, and I was very blessed um, when I grew up. Um, you know, it was a bit of a challenge. Obviously, having cerebral palsy, I grew up with leg braces, eye patch, glasses. Kids are also assholes, so that was less than Facts. fun. Um, you know, love them, love them, like, Child's book, kids book, kids book author here. Definitely love kids, but let's, be, <laughs> but let's be real. They're not always nice when they don't understand right. something, and that's just the reality mm. of their developing 
minds. brain and mm-hmm. cognitive skills and socialization. And so, um, you know, that's actually the origin. Uh, my leg braces are part of the origin of Little Red Fashion, my kids' fashion education company, because the reason I got into fashion, uh, I remember when I was little, my mom wanted me to find a way to downplay my leg braces a little bit. So what we would do is twice a year um, in the summer before the school year and then uh, in the winter after sale, like after the season so that they were on sale and stuff, we would go into the city and uh, look for every imaginable color of like very long tube sock that could be like almost like soccer socks, like pulled over oh, yeah, yeah. the You're leg like, braces yep. to like play them down. Yep. And so I remember really enjoying the process of like finding the socks, looking to color match different outfits. Like that's what really got my, lit my engine in that department. And why I loved fashion and why it was so important. The only other, and the other reason was also my mom, uh, which is why Little Red Fashion is dedicated to her. Because I think fashion is a really unique vehicle for a lot of things. I think for a lot of people, different fashion things, you know, on the one hand, get maligned as like frivolous and stupid and consumeristic. But on the other hand, um, anyone who's ever gotten some hand-me-downs from a relative that meant a lot to them um, knows the power of clothing to transmit stories and transmit meaning and transmit emotion and legacy. And when I think of my mom, I think of how, as a larger woman who was dealing with the crazy diagnosis that she was living with, she never felt more empowered than when she like had on her specific pair of Christian Dior sunglasses that I still have to this day. And like, I remember when I was working in the fashion space, thinking, I feel like that should be the core of where we go with this, you know, with with this little red fashion, little red dress thing, because using fashion as a lens to deconstruct the world and as a lens through which we can create connection is really powerful. And I think it's something the industry itself has lost in many ways. And I think also, not for nothing, for, for launching a brand like Little Red Fashion, the time we're in right now is perfect because the fashion world is like upside down because of coronavirus. Right. And I think uh, the industry really needs a rallying point. And what's a better rallying point than empowering the next generation of its leaders through children, you know, and so that they don't repeat the mistakes of the current um, system. And, and really empower themselves. And so, um, yeah, so I grew up with cerebral palsy, leg braces. As you can see, I love tangents. Uh, <laughs> leg braces. It was tough. It was, it was what you're going to do. You know, I had to fight tooth and nail. Our educational system doesn't really understand kids with disabilities. You know, yes, I have cerebral palsy. It means I have a hole in my cerebellum. My form of cerebral palsy is ataxia. Could be a, a lot worse, too, oh, right? Like exponentially. I have an extremely mild case of CP. Um, Again, um, so my form, ataxia, is the rarest form of CP. And in unlike other forms of CP where you'll see people that have like spasticity where they're very rigid and they can't maybe use one side of their body and things like this, uh, uh, like spastic quadriplegia, things yeah. like this, that's not the same. So mine has to do mostly with depth perception, balance. Um, that's why I don't know how to ride a bicycle. Fun fact. Wow. The depth, depth perception. The balance. It's the balance mm. thing. Uh, like I... How about uh, driving? Driving's fine. Driving's fine. And riding horses was fine. Like, I could ride horses. And I wasn't too terrible at lacrosse, which makes no sense <laughs> at all. <laughs> at all. I, I was also a crazy kid and would, like, get check people left, right, and center because I was short, so I had a lower center of gravity than all these tall lax bros. Yep. It was great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, long stick D mid. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, was, uh, it was a journey learning to live with my disability. I think anyone that grows up in a body that doesn't always feel like home um, struggles in a different way to not only like necessarily love themselves, but like feel comfortable and empowered even just navigating the world. You know, for me, I have to put a sizable amount of cognitive effort into like things like stairs, for example, uh, or uh, like navigating like long days, right? So like when I have a long day and I'm in Manhattan, like if I'm doing something with fashion, if it was fashion week or something like this, like I fatigue much faster than your average bear, so to speak. Mm. Um, So, you know, I think, 
at, back to my mom and back to her struggles, you know, I think she was very instrumental in giving me sort of a full deck to mm -hmm. deal with everything that comes up in my life as someone also living with chronic disease. So I think she was a great expander for me to see that, yes, you might have challenges that are related to your body not feeling like your own or feeling comfortable or being at ease, you know, dis-ease. Um, Disease, mm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you, it's okay. And as long as you honor what your body needs and you get in touch with it and you take care of it, you can, you can push through. And I think that was a really important lesson to me for the CP side of things. And, you know, when I got older in 2010 and was diagnosed with HIV, also very beneficial to come to the table with that. Um, wow. You know, for, uh, rather, to come to the table to that with, again, that set of cards in that deck that said, like, yeah, this doesn't have to define you. Like, so you're, <laughs> my you're, dad makes sounds fun like of Sounds like you have a good, uh, you're, you're good at acceptance. Yes. Accepting you and moving right? What are you going to do? Sit there and... Mope and cry and... I mean, yes, you should. Honestly, yes. You should. No. Forever. No, I think no that's forever, though. Forever, feelings. though. Yeah, what are you going to just, you know? No, exactly. You got to get through it. You got to get through it. I think it's very important to give yourself the space in the immediate moment of those things to do that and to cry and mm -hmm. to sit with the emotion of feeling like a part of your expectation for your life has died right. or changed or radically altered. Uh, but then, like, figure out what you need to do to level the playing field again. Accept it and move on, yeah. Accept it, move on, but then also create whatever modalities or whatever constructs you need in order to move forward productively and like be able to check in in a specific way for that. Right. Like for people with HIV, I did, uh, when I was advising the board of an AIDS service organization, I was also doing some of their early intervention services. Uh, early intervention services are for someone who like gets recently diagnosed and then they don't know like, I need someone to go with me to go to the doctor to get my labs so I'd understand what these numbers mean. I need help with medication adherence. I need help with those things. And so I think a lot of people struggle with that. Um, and even with people who have like cancer and other chronic diseases, I think a lot of people who are recently diagnosed with diabetes maybe have trouble with like making sure they're taking care of their insulin levels. I think a lot of people that have um, lupus and other diseases have trouble maybe accepting like, okay, maybe I should rest now, even though normally I would push myself, but this is a new reality. I think paradigm shifts for anyone are always really hard. And just figuring out what you need to do to make that shift less jarring mm. is important. And then once you figure that out, at least for me, organically, other things will unfold before you as like solutions yeah. and like to anything different else problems. In, like anything else in life, when you're going through something, if you know somebody that's gone through it, it makes it a lot easier. For sure. For sure. That's why you'll hear me say the word expander a lot or expansion. Uh, I do a lot of like manifestation work and manifestation. Affirmations philosophy. and stuff. Um, not so much no. affirmations. I, I work with this woman, uh, Lacey Phillips, who has a, a company called To Be Magnetic. And her energetic philosophy on manifestation really deals a lot with the subconscious mind. Uh, because, you know, you see, like, the secret and stuff like that, right? Like, um, affirmations and, uh, like, not mood boards, what is it? Vision boards and things like that. Personally, I don't think any of those work. <laughs> Sorry to shatter it. <laughs> Sorry to shatter it. I mean, it's been working for me. I, I, I can't lie to you. I've been doing it, and now I, we got the studio, so. No, I, yeah. Well, here's the thing. Uh, it's like a boot print doesn't look like a boot. Yeah, it'll work, but it can take longer, and here's why. All those things work on the conscious mind, but the real solution, manifestation doesn't come from the conscious mind. Manifestation comes from the subconscious uh, mind. Affirmations aren't conscious mind, subconscious. Affirmations are, well, they're both, because when you're going through the act of saying the affirmation, it's your conscious mind. But the goal is to program your Yeah, but it's in two specific times of the day, you know what I mean? It's like the morning time when you're, when you're in that fog and you're not really actually conscious at all. And it's a short gap. And then the other one is at nighttime, same kind of feeling, same kind of mode. And then you just put on those affirmations. You're not even doing them anymore. You know, you're just, you're sleeping actually. And it's just 
being processed into your to your sub download. Yeah, I mean, when you're in a theta waves, uh, like when you're producing theta waves and you're in that state, then you're malleable and you are working on the subconscious. But what I think has happened, I guess, with I'll call it pop manifestation. I think a lot of people don't do what you're doing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No. No. It, and that's true. You're right. You're absolutely. That's like meditation, though. Too. There, are people say they meditate, but are they really meditating? You know what well, I mean? Well, also, like, you know, coming from someone who had a Buddhist company, uh, Art of Dharma, from 2009 to 2014, we left with a you know, 28 million person audience. Jesus. Um, when I stepped away to get my master's and do other things, because um, that chapter had ended, and honestly, if you're doing a Buddhist company and you're not ready to step away from it, maybe you should work on your impermanence thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, I think it's so important to really drive home to anyone who's interested in this stuff, you know? Um, always be checking in with your subconscious. Always be working to reprogram mm -hmm. blocks. And I think two of the main places that I, I see a lot of people like ruining their manifestation philosophy is, again, over-reliance on the conscious mind, but then also um, not doing two specific types of work that I've seen uh, be really beneficial. Inner child work and like reparenting. And like um, reparenting is not about like, oh, my parents screwed up and I'm really angry with them for not doing A, B, C, or D. It's just about revisiting your inner child to say like hey four-year-old john like what did you need what is you know what what are you lacking what do you need to feel your most magnetic empowered and expanded self uh so that's one thing is inner child and then shadow work shadow work and confronting those aspects of pain shame guilt and other mechanisms of that nature that have been programmed into you whether it's by society your family um or uh you know anything else that you're consuming terms of like media and things like that you know i think it's really especially nowadays important that people curate what they take in yeah um so that you're not taking in subconscious messaging that's going to mess with your manifestations and block what you're trying to call in from coming through you know um you ever have that thing where like let's say you want a let's say you want a b or c and then you see around you your friends are getting a b or c but it's not, it's like orbiting you but it's not actually coming through usually for me that's an indicator that there is a block and that the block is usually somewhere in either inner child or shadow work or some form of like that energetic uh, is not coming through because you're, you're, there's some element that you're not expanded in. Mm -hmm. So expansion is where like, I, I don't know how much anyone knows about neuroplasticity, but we function on the basis of like mo uh, mirror neurons and like mirror neurons show our brain, you can do this. So for me, expanders and why I talk about that all the time is because it, I want to show everyone who has either a chronic illness or has been adopted or has dealt with things that are similar to me that they can do things. And I think that is the part of the dream that is free to steal your branding from. Hey, yo. <laughs> you know, it is 100% free to ask questions. It is 100% free to ask people to be your mentor. I think a lot of people are afraid to ask for help these days or admit that like, hey, I don't have it all figured out. Yeah. Or, hey, I don't have this brand fully solidified. You know how many clients I've worked with that are like, they have this weird, what I call weird, but this, this shame about not being able to figure it all out themselves and then needing a consultant or needing an outside person like myself to be like, okay, guys, this is the, the objective view of what's going on. And I think um, the more we work to deprogram that from our culture, the more people will thrive. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really important part also of manifestation is like that expansion. Like if you want a million dollars, if you want to raise a million dollars for your company, then you need to find people that can either be total expanders, meaning someone who's dealt with similar things you have. So like, if I wanted to expand and I didn't know people that had capital that had raised money, uh, I might want to find someone who was gay and had a startup that, again, the key element of that is not just the thing that you're calling in uh, and having them had done it, but also them sharing some fragment of your life experience. So for me, it would be like, okay, I found someone who did raise a million in capital successfully who was gay, or I found someone who was HIV positive and has a company that has just been had a crazy valuation, or 
uh, some fragment of your story that allows your mirror neurons on the subconscious level to be like, I could do that. Mm. That's what expansion is. And that's why expansion is such an important part of what we do at Little Red Fashion because you know, we've spent an entire generation raising kids on shows like Project Runway, Making the Cut, Next in Fashion, and have not given kids uh, anywhere to go. Anywhere to go with that. There's no structured solution for them to nurture those passions outside of like consuming adult media and then kind of figuring it out. Imagine the power of showing children how the sausage is made in terms of the fashion industry and the media in general so that maybe we have less middle school girls vomiting in bathrooms because they're not a size two. And maybe if we taught them these things and didn't take for granted how intelligent kids are, we would show them a whole different perspective on not just fashion, but everything. Is, is Little Red Fashion a product line or is it a... Little Red Fashion is, it's, it's corporation. Uh, we are creating the world's first comprehensive fashion education solution for kids encompassing 12 books. Uh, the first of which I wrote, it's called The Little Red Dress. It is a 360 degree view of the fashion industry through the eyes of a little red dress that you follow from sketch to sample to runway to photo shoot. And it's narrating in a very like Dr. Susie sing song voice. It's meant yeah. for like a third grade reading level. Uh, it was really important to me. You know, there are kids, we have made fashion a, a sort of fetishized career path, almost in the vein of like celebrity chefs. You know, and, and uh, a lot of that centers around the idea of, like, a designer. When most kids think, of, like, I want to get into fashion, they're like, oh, I want to be a designer. Or a model. Or a model, exactly. Right. I either want to be in front of the camera selling the clothes or, or creating them. clothes, yeah, But yeah. there are over a dozen other career paths within yeah. fashion that kids don't even think about. Like, how many kids know what a buyer does? How many kids know what textile scientists do? How many kids know how, again, the sausage is made? And so part of what we're doing is creating our titles to view the world through the lens of fashion and educate kids who love fashion. But the other piece of it is using fashion as a lens through which to deconstruct other complex topics. Our first book is a, is a really like that flagship title that's really applicable. We'll be translating it into a number of languages and really kind of using that as our flagship book that's accessible to everyone. But the other books really deal with other more niche issues. For example, and they're all little red, so we have look. The Little Red Kicks, and that is a streetwear title that deals with sneakers and footwear and the history of, like, shoe nerds, you know? Like, if you're a sneakerhead, like, that's the book for you. Yeah. Uh, you know, and through that story and through sneakers, we also talk about things like growing up in the inner city. We also talk about, talk about things uh, like if you have a broken home and you have a passion that you use to escape a broken home life like my dad did with his violin, but maybe for you it's shoes and streetwear and sneakers and flipping Jordans or whatever it is. Um, it's about using fashion again, just like my mom's sunglasses, as that lens to talk about these other difficult things. Little Red Hijab is all about the celebrating um, Muslim uh, fashion and textile uh, history, but also talking about Islamophobia and what it's like to move to a new country and what it is like to come from a culture that is in stark juxtaposition to our Western culture where it's okay to have modest fashion. Like it, There's nothing unfashionable about being modest and, and dressing that way. There are some of the most stylish women I know are hijabis, you know? You know? Um, and so it's about dovetailing these two things together where fashion can be this depoliticized vehicle where we can expand kids to see that people who look, talk, act like they do are doing the things they love and are interested and can show them that I can do this as well. Uh, and so through our 12 titles, um, that's a big piece of the puzzle. The other piece is our technology. So we are creating the Little Red Sketchbook, which is an immersive fashion learning laboratory for kids that operates through a sketchpad. If any of you are familiar with VH1's old school show, pop-up video, it's yeah. kind of like that meets a sketchpad with fashion education. Uh, and then we have another initiative called Little Red Village. Um, you ever see Inside the Actor's Studio? 
with James Lipton. Nah. Okay, so classic show. Rest in peace, James Lipton. Mm. He would he would bring on actors to uh, to like his, the actor studio, which is a platform workshop for actors, and basically act as an expander for them. These the, he would have his blue cards that had this like battery of questions that some of which were direct about acting and like tips that they could give, but then some of them were like, when you get to the pearly gates, what's the first thing that you would like God to say to you, and things like this. Mm. So my thought was, okay, well. Fashion has a hideously high barrier entry for a lot of people. It's really not easy for kids who love fashion in Iowa to, <laughs> to, yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to like have access it's hard to hard enough for kids in New York to Right, and they could go right to down to the garment right. district. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And so for me, it's like, okay, how do we make these things universal? How do I create the tools that I didn't have as a kid? Well, let's gamify it. Who doesn't like a game, right? So Little Red right. Village is all about talking to fashion professionals, running them through a battery of about 15 questions meant to uh, expand kids uh, about what they, you know, when did you get started in fashion? What did you love about it? What did you wish you knew when you were, you know, 10 and first getting into this? What tips do you have for kids? What books should they read? What media should they consume if they want to learn more and be like experts by the time they're 15, you know? That is the purpose of Little Red Village and we are so lucky. Our first Little Red Village participant is actually the third runner up in Amazon's Making the Cut, Sander Boss. So he's our first Little Red Village participant and he's like a with the idea and I love and I'm so blessed that it, uh, it's being well received you know I worked on Little Red Fashion myself with mm. my business partner Ryan for the past two years um, to get it to where it is and now we're finally at that place where we're getting that feedback from industry professionals that are like this is genius this will be a billion dollar company like this is something that no one has done before and that's really rare in 2020. Yeah it's gonna be awesome. Uh, it is gonna be awesome you know Little Red Village is gonna be amazing what we're gonna end up doing is taking that database of uh, answers and doing two things before we build the next the second app we are going to be using it as a content strategy. So we'll be doing interviews like this yep. uh, with professionals, live streamed interviews with different designers, uh, chief operating officers. I mean, when I say I want kids to see every piece of the industry, I want them to be able to hear from someone who's like the head of marketing. I want them to hear from someone who's an operations officer who does, you know, logistics relative to production. I, these are the things that I think kids want to know that there's just no resources for them. And so hopefully our media channels uh, from our Instagram, which is at Little Red Dressbook currently, uh, you know, we do Make It Monday. Make It Monday is our new initiative where we're all about creative play. And what happens is upstairs, Emily Swift and I, uh, who's our media Shout partner. Shout out Emily Swift. Shout out to Emily Swift, Emily Swift Studios on Twitter. Uh, you know, we create stuff. Our, our idea is we want kids to be able to use creative play to explore the world of fashion and bring families closer together. When coronavirus started, we had to pivot, and we ended up doing this contest called the Little Red Dress Up Challenge, where we encouraged families to come together through fashion at this really trying time, and we ended up getting so many awesome submissions of uh, essentially editorial-style shoots that kids were doing with their parents at home wearing, like, a red garment. And uh, there's <laughs> our winner... Uh, actually, the, the mom, I was just talking to her, her daughter, like, was obsessed with the contest, and as a result of winning, is, like, really legitimately trying to be a kid model, and, like, genuinely, like, lit more of the fire under her oh, to nice. do that, which was so inspirational to hear. I was just like, oh, my God, we're doing the thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, so Little Red Village will eventually be, aside from a content strategy, we're actually going to be gamifying it and making it, like, an RPG-style game where they're na navigating, uh, like, a digital... Um, like Sims, garment, but uh, more like or Pokemon. More yeah. like Pokemon, where they're like navigating a digital garment district, going around collecting the pieces they need to create the little red dress and other garments. But in order to get those pieces, they have to engage with these avatars of these fashion professionals and get the mentorship piece delivered to them that way. Mm, that's cool. Um, because games are where it's at for kids. Like you have to engage them on their level. You have to make sure that you're you're making it fun, and, and they're not just being like dictated to. I think right. that's another thing uh, with fashion. It's 
you know, we can have Elmo telling people to dress themselves all they want. I think that's really great. And I think kids who love fashion are going to be those kids that are like, I'm going to wear, you know, rain boots, a bl blue sweatshirt, and a red hat, and a whatever. Uh, and yeah. that's great. But then for those kids who want to take it a step further and actually learn stuff, we've got to give them those tools. And those tools don't exist. And it's actually kind of criminal that they don't. Because, again, whole generation with all these shows that inspire them and, like, make them want to be in this field. But no guidelines. But no do. guidelines. Nothing in there. Um, I was talking to Carmela Spinelli, the head of fashion uh, education at SCADS, Fanta College of Art and Design, and she's just like, this is genius because no one's done this. How has no one done this? And I think the reason no one's done it is twofold. For one thing, I think a lot of people shy away from getting kids involved in fashion because they view the industry itself as toxic, which is not necessarily a lie. There are many toxic elements. But how do you change toxic elements in an industry if not through the next generation? Right. You know, uh, so many fashion brands are trying to change these things, but they're not going far enough. They're very performative. It's very lip service. It's, it's very kind of like connected with the like Hollywood and the acting world, right? Like there's yeah, a lot for, of. I mean, for sure, for sure. And I think also, you know, when it comes to like intersectional realities and the representation of minorities, the differently abled, um, there's just not enough being done. There's just not enough being done. And if we choose to try and continue, you know, cyclically getting the industry as it stands now to do it, we're not going to make any progress. So as a disruptor, my job as an entrepreneur is to push the envelope, but I want to push the envelope through empowering the next generation of fashion leaders and creatives and, frankly, ignoring who's currently in the industry unless they're, like, Little Red Village is that. That's our f industry facing initiative. You know, that's where it's like, if you care about this industry as much as you say you do, help me help kids do it better when it's their turn. Because yeah. for me, that's how we move the needle. That's how we change things. That's how we make progress. We are an, yes, we are a passion company. Yes, we will be a billion dollar company. Yes, you know, we are focused on sales and product and the things that we're putting out there. But first and foremost, we're an impact focused company because we're disrupting an industry that is well overdue for a lot of these changes. And frankly, coronavirus in its own perverse way was a blessing for that because the entire industry has been upended, twisted into a pretzel and is in chaos. And chaos is where you get the Ubers of the world. Literally. And yes. I want us to be the Uber of kids' fashion education because no one else is touching this as a, an issue area. And I've spoken now to hundreds of parents and educators who are like, this is great. And part of why it's great is because in addition to our products, in addition to our books, in addition to our technology, we are also working with some great uh, like uh, pedagogical education experts. One of the top uh, education experts in the state of Nevada is actually uh, in the process of joining our advisory board as well. And it is because we will be creating a full suite of ancillary materials in STEAM education, literacy, common core standard driven uh, programs and materials so that, I don't know, you remember standardized tests? Like yep. like a, Absolutely. Hey, remember all those dry, boring paragraphs and like yeah. exercises? Yeah. Okay. I blew through them because well, it didn't count anyways. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I was like, I'm not, I'm not even putting up But what if this. we use the fact that we raised this entire generation to fetishize the, uh, you know, the concept of working in fashion to incentivize them to actually give a shit about STEAM education and literacy by creating those exercises and materials through the lens of fashion? What if all those word problems that you were doing were based on something you actually gave a damn about, like sneaker right. values or resale or whatever it might be? Fashion is like that for a lot of kids right now. Um, just look at kid fashion Twitter and Instagram. Um, that's a thing. And so why don't we create tools not only to educate kids who like fashion, but also to educate all kids in new ways that haven't been touched before and create all these different enrichment materials, exercise books, literacy, uh, you know, reading comprehension workbooks and stuff like that. So we're, we're really trying to attack this as from like a full ecosystem approach. 
where it's not just one thing, it's all the things in various forms to maximize uh, what we're doing. So that's the sounds, basic sounds good. spiel yeah. on Little Red Fashion, if you could call it basic. Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah. It's giving me a different uh, appreciation for the, the fashion world. Like me personally, like, yeah. I'm, I'm probably the most disconnected person from... Even though you got so much swag from the fashion world, I'm like, uh, like I, I hate going clothes shopping. I like literally don't want to have to think about right. clothes at all. Like it's, I only go shopping because I absolutely need to. And like, if I'm going into a store, I'm like, all right, this is what I need. This is what I'm going in. This is what I'm getting. You're in good company. And, That's yeah. like nine. Look, I was in a frat. That's like 99% of the straight men I know. It's <laughs> like, oh, cool clothes. I'm not naked. Got it. Yeah. Like, you, you know, and that's like where it starts and ends um, outside of jerseys. And obviously that's a different thing. Yeah. Uh, but no, I've never thought about like how, pe how connected people can be to fashion and to clothing for other reasons, like as like an escape from some sort of childhood trauma or just the, all, you, all this other yeah, stuff. I never thought stuff, about yeah. it. Like most people don't, most people don't, um, they just see fashion as this like frivolous thing that only frivolous people care about so that they can like look good and do that. There's so much more than that. And I think, Part of uh, detoxifying the industry is reshaping the way the industry is viewed by the world at large. Right. And I think doing it through the lens of helping kids is one of the best ways to do that. Um, while you're simultaneously obviously helping them learn and helping them. Yeah, and make it this non-toxic kind of culture for them to skills. grow up into. And build soft skills. Because soft skills, if you talk to any employment professional or recruiter, like soft skill development is one of the most important things in securing jobs these days. And with technology, it's a, a lot of these younger kids are losing those soft skills oh a hundred a hundred percent and you know our job at little red fashion is to as we grow over the next couple of years as we go through you know uh, the you know series a series b all these things my vision is that we continually bring out tools on the technological side that and, and on the tangible side you know we have other products that we're in develop are in development right now in terms of textile education and fabric um to in, that integrate with the little red sketchbook and things like that so that we can also teach about that and um all said and done, at the end of the day, I think it's just really important to give kids the tools that they need no matter what they're doing. And for me, as a philanthropy expert as well, you know, corporate social responsibility is a big part of my portfolio. And obviously, I would be remiss if I didn't also integrate that into what we're doing at Little Red Fashion in terms of each of our titles, um, having a portion of the proceeds benefit a variety of nonprofits that are pursuing missions that we think are important and salient. Uh, also, we'll have you know, to introduce you to uh, Harry Bell, who was here yes. yesterday. Yeah, I mean, I did yeah. my uh, graduate research at Columbia in philanthropic capitalism and fundraising management. Um, I pursued that because I, I've worked in the nonprofit sector in one way or a fashion or another uh, most of my life, uh, whether it was teaching at a synagogue, nonprofit, whether it was advising nonprofits uh, and their boards on governance and fundraising, or whether I was like an advocate or an ambassador like I am for uh, an anti-human trafficking organization called Beauty for Freedom. Uh, which works with survivors of human and sex trafficking internationally to provide like art therapy programs to them. Yeah. So one of our cool projects that we did, you can check us out at beautyforfreedom.org, um, is we went to Calcutta, India, to the brothels in the red light district, worked with this amazing organization called New Light Calcutta, and we brought over a bunch of like American photographers who brought cameras with them, trained the kids who are in the brothels to use the cameras and then gave them cameras to document what their life is like wow. and then turn that into a coffee table book to raise funds to help with like um, victim impact services, funding victim impact advocates. What was, what was the outcome of that? I would imagine it's like kind of uh, oh, it was great. dangerous oh my God. Yeah. too for them as well, right? Like if you're... Um, well, not really in the sense that we were working with a partner organization, New Light Calcutta, that their specific issue portfolio is 
um, helping to not only provide like STD and STI screenings to the, the moms who are in the trade, so to speak, but um, Unique to India is a really interesting and horrifying um, cycle or modality of like intergenerational prostitution. Yeah. And so in order to break that part of New Light's mission is to provide like what I would amount, what amounts to night care, like daycare, but night care so mm-hmm. that the kids aren't necessarily in the brothels at the time and they're at New Light and doing other things rather than being surrounded by prostitution. Right. Um, and so, you know, that, that, that's the type of like philanthrocapitalism and type of ind- endeavors, like making that into a coffee table book, using impact. Impact is my favorite, one of my favorite words. You know, if you're not making an impact, what are you doing? You know, you're just masturbating with balance sheets, you, you know, like that's, that's not going to help anyone. And I think that carries over into everything I do with my private sector clients as well. One of my proudest achievements is that I've been weirdly able to balance both private sector understanding and nonprofit strategy and sort of integrate them on both levels, whether it's for a private sector company through corporate social responsibility, um, particularly the cannabis space. You know, my company, Savage Venture, uh, through which I have a couple holdings, but also we focus on corporate social responsibility and fundraising management. Um, We've also done projects in the cannabis space. Look at the cannabis space. That's a really good thing to talk about. Legal cannabis, right? So we have (laughs) on one side of Hollywood at like high note, like what amounts to luxury cannabis dispensaries, but we still have millions of incarcerated people of color who haven't had their... Yeah, you can still get arrested for having a dime bag on you in some states. It's like... It's wild to me the way that we treat cannabis in the United States uh, because, for one thing, it's a plant. For another thing, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Look, if we dedicated as much energy into sustainable hemp technologies whether it's hemp-based bioplastics, which uh, Savage Venture is currently raising about $1 million for this amazing woman who created a um, biodegradable hemp plastic okay. for dispensary packaging Sounds because cool. child safety laws require a lot of packaging on cannabis products, no matter what legal state it is, whether it's California, Connecticut, uh, on the medical side, uh, Colorado, whatever. That packaging is currently not biodegradable. Like, it's just there, and it just sits there forever. So she, we're raising her capital, this wonderful woman, uh, to really blow that out of the water. She has been able to develop a biodegradable hemp plastic that once we create two more things, like uh, pieces of intellectual property with this capital we're bringing in, we'll be within three to five cents of petroleum-based plastics Wow! in terms of pricing, which is huge and very important. Back to a little bit of Little Red Fashion. That's why eventually down the line with Little Red Fashion, I would love us to do a Series B round where we raise a couple million to invest in domestic hemp production for textiles. I think domestic hemp textile production is also extremely important. You know, uh, thanks to last year's farm bill, um, one of the few things (laughs) this administration did that I agree with, uh, you know, we're able to finally move the needle on some of these things in terms of the hemp industry. You know, there are very weird supply chain related roadblocks to getting actually scaled hemp technologies. For example, drying. Hemp dryer technology is vastly inefficient, and the cost to dry a wet pound of industrial hemp hovers between like four and five dollars, three and five dollars, depending on when and where. Um, but there are technologies out there that uh, you know have been recently developed by colleagues of mine where you're getting that down to like fifty cents. You're getting that down to a dollar, and that's the kind of pricing mechanisms you need. Like I, I briefly flirted with the commodity space for two years. I was dealing with lithium, iron, cobalt, diamonds, gold. Um, you know, advising mining projects and all those things. Uh, thankfully, that part of my life is over. Full disclosure, not very, <laughs> not, not very proud of having worked on that side of things, particularly. Probably learned a lot, though. I did. I did. And there was a part of me that also thought it was really important as a queer person to be represented in those spaces, which are typically very closed off to us. Right. Um, something that's, like, not really there. Visibility is very important. Um, plus, as a negotiation tactic, surprising them with a the super gay dude, it was uh, kind of helpful in terms, <laughs> in terms of negotiating. 
you know, putting people off their game a little bit. Yeah. When the other side of the table <laughs> like, very helpful as a negotiation <laughs> yeah, tactic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, strategic faggotry. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> linguistic reclamation is okay if you are part of a marginalized group. Yeah. So yeah. just to put that caveat out there. But yes. Don't you be saying it. Anyway. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, moral of the story, I think it's really crazy because we're, I think we're on the cusp of a really big revolution in the, in the cannabis space. And part of that revolution must absolutely must involve social equity. And that means expunging records. That means moving the needle on legislation to decriminalize. That means providing assistance in getting capital to uh, you know, dispensary owners and, and cannabis entrepreneurs of color who are um, historically disenfranchised from banking yeah. and uh, access to capital and don't have intergenerational wealth. Uh, or access to networks that have intergenerational wealth. You know, I look, I went to Colombia. I am very blessed to be able to know people that I can call and be like, hey, you know, I know you manage this $3 billion fund. Do you think you want to maybe invest in this thing? Okay, well, if you grew up in the inner city and you never had opportunity and your family had no money because it was taken from them because they were redlined out of getting their first home and unable to get an FHA loan because they were black, then you're probably not going to know people that you can just call to get you capital. Right. You know, and so lowering those barriers to entry, again, like to bring it back to the profession, lowering barriers to entry, no matter what the industry is, something I'm very committed to the for more, marginalized groups. Yeah, the more we talk, the more I'm like, you have to meet the guy who was on our podcast yesterday, Harry Bell, who's... From the projects in Bridgeport, from from the terrace, Trumbull Gardens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he's uh, his his story is crazy. We'll send you the podcast and put it out. But you, it'd be awesome for you to sit down with him because his whole thing is like he he's taking he ha- he has a coloring book. It's called Color of Positive Thought. That's the premise behind behind his organization. The story behind it is amazing. And what he does is he'll take twenty kids from the projects in Bridgeport and get them into sailing lessons. Oh. Yeah, tennis, tennis lessons, lessons. takes them camping, gets them out of their normal expansion. Yes. expansion. But he's, you know, he's growing. He's he's pretty. Yes. He's been doing it for six years, but he's he's growing and growing and growing. He's reaching and that tipping point of like he just became he, a certified nonprofit, right, Jake? Right, he just became God an actual him nonprofit. For that process. Also, for anyone listening that wants to start a nonprofit, call me. I do that literally for a living. Filing a ten twenty three is a very challenging thing, but Savage Venture could do it for you. Got it. Shamelessplugs so, at gmail.com. We would love. Yeah, I'm definitely <laughs> gonna connect connect you. To yeah, you yeah, yeah definitely. To... Listen, there's nothing I love more than a fellow entrepreneur, whether that entrepreneurial spirit is being manifest in the private sector or the charitable sector or some combination of the two. Mm. Philanthropism is very powerful uh, yeah. and can really move the needle on, on change. Um, you know, even with Little Red Fashion, one of my favorite issue things to, or mechanisms within the nonprofit space is what's called a PRI. PRIs <laughs> are program-related investments. So like if I'm a nonprofit and let's say my issue area is uh, childhood mentorship, you might want to make a program-related investment in Little Red Fashion because we're building a digital mentorship platform. Mm. And then your nonprofit can act like an investor, gain your you know equity, and then cash it out later, and that money goes towards your programming. Yeah. Program-related investments are one of my favorite things, uh, along with donor advice funds, but we don't have to go into that. That's a whole different <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> Yeah. Um, before, so yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, before we, we, the clock. Before we wrap up, we, I mean, a few more minutes. Um, going back to your personal story, what sure. I, when I was reading everything, I was like, how, how did you go from being a, a Jewish Catholic-raised to individual a, to, a to a Buddhist, yeah. Uh, I have a very darling friend, Kai, who was my one of my best friends in college, who was a Buddhist, and with whom I founded Art of Dharma. And they saw that I was having trouble like navigating my mother's passing constructively and really kind of just opened my eyes to the Dharma. 
mm. and really, uh, you know, linked me with my former Lama, Lama Sumati Marut, who's uh, unfortunately no longer with us, um, you know, working with ACI or the Asians Classics Institute. Um, and that was sort of the kicking the snowball off the mountain to create the avalanche. I just, I really resonated with a lot of what I read. You know, I'm a voracious reader. I read constantly. If you go upstairs, I have a gajillion books in my studio because I, I've always been a reader. Uh, and paintings. I mean, and paintings, of course, which you should totally <laughs> check out at jjosephstudio.com. I'm also open for commissions. Uh, you know, for me, it just, Buddhism resonated with me because it wasn't dogmatic. Mm-hmm. It provided a lot of context for, again, as someone with ADHD, modalities that like calmed my mind and really got me outside myself. And, you know, it's like the Dalai Lama says, right? If you want to be happy, make others happy. Yep. And uh, that resonated with me. And so I fell down the rabbit hole. You know, my first company, Art of Dharma, started as a way for Kai <coughs> and I to navigate learning about Buddhism as Western people. You know, we started doing import-export of ritual items from Nepal and India and Tibet for Western Buddhists. And then we started the blog because we were like, oh, let's teach people what this stuff is. Like, what's a ziggy bowl? What's a dorji? What's a thangka? What are, how, how do you integrate these into practice? Our tagline was upgrade your practice. Um, Art of Dharma, upgrade your practice was the thing. Uh, and then um, as the blog grew and we were, you know, making dropshipping sales and import-export stuff, we realized that it was imperative to build a community as opposed to just an outlet. Mm-hmm. And we pivoted to a user-submitted content model that was kind of like a forerunner to what is now known as Elephant Journal. Uh, they do a lot of Buddhist user-submitted content. That's their thing. And um, as a result, we ended up ballooning. That's, that's really when we hit our stride. Uh, you know, when I left the company in 2014, I mean, we were we had like a half a million <laughs> Facebook uh, fans. We were reaching, again, an aggregate audience of 28 million people per month mm. um, out of a dorm room, essentially, at Hofstra, <laughs> you, you know, and, and that was sort of where I cut my teeth in the social media space. That's what led to me doing freelance consulting, which then snowballed into other consulting. And, it, you know, everything has an or- origin somewhere. And for me, um, Buddhism as a solution to calming my mind in the wake of my mother's passing was a really beneficial one and really fruitful. And so, you know, there's also a lot of commonalities. You know, when I was 17, I was in a synagogue in Brewster, New York, mm-hmm. and I was teaching comparative religion. So really, that also sort of primed the pump, as it were, for later when I got that really into religious Buddhism. exploration. That religious exploration. You know, my dad always just tell me a story. When he moved here from Iran to get his PhD, he was very lonely because he had no, nobody here. And what he used to do was go to different churches and mosques and uh, temples, and he would always be like, yeah, like I didn't have really many friends when I first got here, and I was lonely, and I knew that God would keep me company no matter where I went to look for him. And um, Was he raised Muslim? No, he was raised Jewish. Okay. He was raised Jewish. Uh, one side of my family, uh, on, his, on his side, one side is very like uh, conservative Jewish. Uh, but then we also have a, a branch of the family uh, that's Baha'i, if you're familiar with the Baha'i faith at all. Baha'i faith was like a 19th century offshoot of Islam started by this guy, the Baha'u'llah, who was preceded by this guy uh, called the Bab or Gate, who essentially acts like John the Baptist being like, hey, this guy is coming. He's the next prophet. Um, as mm. you can imagine, being in Iran uh, in the 19th century, <laughs> didn't go that saying well. that there's another prophet after right. Muhammad <laughs> is extremely heretical, right. especially when you couple it with one of their do- core tenets, which is that 
because the soul has no gender before God, men and women are equal. So that double whammy in Iran made them very, very highly persecuted. You can look into the history of the Baha'i faith in uh, Iran, very fraught with like lots of imprisonment, torture, oh, very like horrible, yeah. like really horrible. Um, you know, and I had an uncle who was a conservative Jew his entire life, and then he went to one Baha'i meeting, came back and was like, guys, this is the thing. Like mm -hmm, immediate, wow. like Damascene conversion, Paul on the road to Damascus, like totally converted. And not only converted, but then ended up becoming a Baha'i elder and then taking the whole section of the family to Jamaica to be what's called a pioneer to bring the Baha'i faith to Jamaica because no one ever had. Where he then built a huge Baha'i center, became an elder in the faith, wrote like four books on Baha'i scripture and all that stuff and ended up basically becoming persona non grata. In fact, when my father went to Iran to settle his father's estate after his passing when I was like I don't know, 10 or 11, he ended up having to get the State Department involved because the Iranian government wouldn't let him leave because they were questioning him for weeks about where's your uncle, where's your uncle, oh, wow. get us your uncle, like, bring, like we'll hold you here until your uncle shows up, basically. And they had to get the State Department involved in this whole thing. Um, so, so your dad uh, raised Jewish, but he when he came here, he was going to mosques and churches? Yeah, or? yeah, he just wanted... Just wanted to be around to be godly around people? God. No, no, it wasn't even about the people. It was literally about his relationship to the divine period. Like, mm. he just wanted that energy. So it sounds like he was a pretty open-minded. When it comes to that, yeah. Person. When it comes to that, for sure. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I and I let me I be clear. Definitely <laughs> took a lot of that. You know, yeah. I loved teaching comparative religions when I was younger. For me, that was so fascinating because there are so many bridges between all of these faith paths. That's also something that's actually relatively Baha'i. Baha'i faith believes that um, you know every every religion, every major figurehead, whether it's Muhammad, Jesus, the Buddha, etc., are all manifestations of the same. God energy or that same spiritual energy. The symbol for the Baha'i faith, is a, I don't want to get strong, but I think it's a nine-pointed star because it's each of the main religions. Okay. And, like, that's very big for them. So um, I was definitely also influenced by that. Like, I had lots of aunts and uncles and cousins and stuff that are Baha'i that, you know. Interesting. Com coming from yeah. that pedigree of, like, being the kids of, like, an elder that was a pioneer that built it. I mean, if you go to, if you look it up, like, the, the Baha'i Center in Jamaica is huge. It's like a thing. Um, it's dope. It's cool. I think it's, I think it's cool. I also have, like, some family that are, like, are Zerestrian. Uh, you know, so I grew up in a family that was it was okay to like be like exploratory Got it. in, in right. that sense. And right. so for me, you know, navigating my way to Buddhism, uh, you know, was uh, sort of almost natural in right. that sense. And I, I was also raised Reformed Jewish, which is like, you know, kind of like diet Jews. <laughs> it's a little more like lax, nonchalant. Don't keep, kosher, yeah, yeah. don't keep kosher. That wasn't a thing. Yeah. Uh, and so it was easy for me to navigate away from that, but also maintain some of those common threads that tied them all together, whether it was the Judaism, the Buddhism, the Christianity. I think there, again, are a lot of parallels similarities of and parallels that they all share, which is why I find religious infighting in particular completely nonsensical, but that's a different story. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into that on another podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we can totally yeah, do yeah. a part two. That's well, fine we by definitely me. will. Yeah. yeah. I definitely, definitely tangented will. you guys to death. Sorry about that. No, we, no, I, no. I learned a lot Jake, today. Yeah. yeah, it was good. I'm, I'm watching Jake this whole time and I, I know my brother and he's 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 <laughs> impressed right now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He learned a lot. I know. Well, I'm glad. I hope everyone listening like was able to definitely take something from it. You know, whenever I do podcasts or anything like this, um, I know my life is bizarrely random. Yeah. You know, you have, you have all of the, uh, like, like just your life story would be perfect if you were like a stand up comedian. Like if you were just walking yeah. out on stage oh and you were like, God. Hey, so I am in, I, in yeah. adopted from Columbia, uh, <laughs> Jewish Catholic Buddhist, yeah. uh, I know, right? homosexual raised by a, an Iranian. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I honestly, People if I was going like, to do stand up, I would call it trigger warning. But unfortunately as a, <laughs> yeah. as a kid's book, cause I honestly, I'll, like on the record, I have a very horrible sense of humor. That's like very, 
edgy. Yeah, um, same here. So yeah, it's all good. As a children's book author, I have chosen to eschew that reality. But let me tell you. After we reach our billion dollar valuation yes. and I exit the company, I will 100% pursue that. Pursue the standard. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm funny, looking forward I'm a funny to bitch. it. Me too. <laughs> I'm a funny bitch. And I know yeah, it. no, you um, are. It's just you that are. my sense of humor can definitely be too edgy for my current. Uh, non When you're involved with a children's uh, fashion company? Yeah. yeah. Kids, kids fashion education. <laughs> you, can, you can only be so edgy. Right. right. Which is fine. I'm all about setting a good example for kids. I mean, Look, learn from my mistakes so I don't repeat them. Yeah. Or so there you, you go. Rather, so you don't repeat them. Right. Uh, you know, that's that's what, again, expansion is all about. That's what we owe the next generation. It's yeah. like, hey, I stumbled here, here, here. Here's how you can avoid that. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, which you'll see much more of me doing that uh, as we ramp up. Because uh, the newest member that I was telling you that we onboarded to our advisory board uh, was a director of partnerships at a rather saucy firm you may have heard of called Yahoo. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And once we onboard her, it's going to be off to the races with that because our biggest challenge has been PR mm -hmm. uh, and getting our message out there. Because let's face it, as you who have been listening to this podcast can tell, I have a very PR friendly <laughs> story. Right. So yeah. definitely a lot of people involved. can relate to you. Uh, I, I try to be relatable. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I also live inside my own head. So sometimes I'm like, oh, bro, you're wild. <laughs> what is this? But, you, you know, you got to just put yourself out there. I think the, the bottom line that I hope anyone listening takes away from my wild narrative of randomness that is my life is follow your gut. Follow your intuition. But only do that if you have done the inner work of making sure that it's a grounded intuition. I think there's a lot of danger in just like running wildly into the ether uh, without the grounding element because that's when you get over too far over your skis, you know? Mm. Uh, and I've done that in the past too, you know? Full disclosure, like I've made, look, I, <laughs> I've made plenty of mistakes in my life. I didn't handle my mom's death very well. And I, you know, I had a DUI. I, I, I fucked up fully. Like I did fuck up. I own that. That's part of my story. That's part of my past. I'm not proud of it. I'm not excusing it. I think yeah. it was horrible. I think we could appreciate your openness. Yeah. Everything. No, yep. I mean, look, I'm an open book because I have a lot of different stories that I think people can relate to. And it's not my job to be a saint or to be perfect, but it is my job to be accountable. And it is my job to set an example of accountability and transparency. For those of you who are familiar with Ray Dalio's principles, yeah. um, that's like my Bible. Ever since I started consulting like 10 years ago, I keep copies of it in my office to give to clients. Like I'm very big on radical transparency and accountability mm. and I have to live that truth or else I'm a hypocritical asshole. So, mm. you know, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Well, we appreciate you for coming on. We're Thanks for forward. having me. Yeah. Thank you, brother. You oh, it's a pleasure. You want to just drop where everybody could find you again? Sure. Absolutely. So you can find me personally on Instagram at the real J Joseph, and you can find little red fashion at www.littleredressbook.com for the next couple weeks. But in two weeks, we will be dropping the new website, littleredfashion.com, where you can pre-order The Little Red Dress, our first digital title. And uh, you can check out any of my other projects at uh, www.savageventure.com for corporate social responsibility, fundraising, management, consulting, jjosephstudio.com for fine art, and uh, soon, firestarterfoods.com, which is my chili oil company that we didn't get a chance to talk about but uh, to be if you like tasty <laughs> food, we'll just put it on uh, on part two. Part two, we'll talk it's about fire. other things. It's really I've tasty. had it. 
Yeah, yeah, we could do a taste test next time. Yes. Oh, yes, totally, yes. totally. We just uh, got our label proofs and stuff, which is really exciting. Perfect. Awesome. So we go into production in our commercial kitchen now. We were delayed by COVID because it was in, it, we were in LA. Yeah. Three of my four companies are based in LA, and I'm usually by coastal, except uh, the West COVID. Coast is on fire, and COVID right. is. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's where you can find me, uh, and definitely make sure on Instagram, Little Red Dress Book. Give us a follow. Check us out every Friday for Fashion Fact Friday, where we do like one minute fashion facts for kids and make it Monday where we creatively play with fashion. Nice. Sounds good. Thank you for coming on. We appreciate next you for having me, guys. Appreciate you. Appreciate you too.